This is a production of JetWit.com. Special thanks to U.S. Jet AA and Claire for their support. Hello, everyone. This is Jessica Livingston. Welcome to the Jetosphere podcast. I was a Hokkaido ALT from 2003 to 2006, and now I'm the executive director of U.S. Jet AA, which is an independent nonprofit organization that is dedicated to U.S. Jet alumni. I'd like to thank Stephen Horowitz, who is in Aichi Ken from 92 to 94 and is a Jet AADC member. He's the producer of the Jetosphere and founder of JetWit.com, and he has allowed me to hijack his podcast space yet again. So thank you, Stephen. Although US Jet AA is headquartered in DC, I live in Denver and I'm part of the Jet AA Rocky Mountain chapter. And today I have the great pleasure of talking to Irene Tran Donahue who now lives in Hollywood, but she was a Nagasaki jet for two years from 2002 to 2004. So Irene, I feel like I should ask you to do a Jiko Shokai where you give like your jet town and your hobby <laughs> and your favorite food. <laughs> yes, I um, my jet town was a little town called um, Aokata on Kamigoto in the Goto Islands off of Nagasaki. So it was just this beautiful, like super Inaka fishing village. Um, the island looked like Hawaii. There were actually five other jets on my island. I wasn't one of the people that was like the only foreigner on the entire island. Like yeah. there were a lot of people on islands where they were the only one. We're all first years together. We all hit it off. They're st we're still close. And then my now husband, then boyfriend was actually in Nag just outside of Nagasaki city in Koyagicho, um, it was like 20 minutes outside of Nagasaki and he was placed there. Um, so we, we applied to the program together and we had met while we were backpacking in Vietnam the year before he was on his way actually to Japan. He wanted to teach English, not the jet program, but he was just going to, you know, go find an English teaching job. We ended up staying together. And he was the one that introduced me to the JET program. Okay, I want to back up a minute because, yeah. um, so I ran across Irene through a mutual friend of ours who's also a JET. And then a couple of emails and Facebook messages later, here we are. So Irene is a screenwriter in Hollywood. And I want to congratulate you on the success of your newest movie, A Tourist Guide to Love which made it, this is so awesome. It made it to number one on Netflix. In the, in the world. It was number one in the world on Netflix. Yeah, That's, yeah for a couple weeks. <laughs> I mean, didn't you feel so amazing? That was, it was incredible. It was, yeah. When I woke up, actually, like I was in Vietnam doing press when I got the message that we were number one in the world. And I literally just started bawling. I was like, it was so overwhelming. I was just like, oh my God, like I can't believe this is happening and even now to like think about because I'm just like oh whatever and I'm just living my life and you know and nothing has changed because I don't make any more money off of it. like for anyone who doesn't understand Hollywood and, and streaming residuals you don't get anything it's not like a box office movie where it's like number one in the world and suddenly you're making a lot of money so like my life hasn't changed but then I think oh god like number one in the world <laughs> it's a big deal it's a huge deal yeah. so I watched the movie over the weekend and it it made me want to travel again and live life like I did when I was on the jet program. You know, there was sort of this feeling of being free when you're on jet, right? Like most of us didn't have families and 
some of us were married, but most of us were not. And so it was sort of this time in your life where you're living in Asia and you could just sort of hop around wherever your desire took you as long as your school had a break. Right. And, and watching this movie made me want to go back to that time. And in particular, it made me want to go to Vietnam because you showcased Vietnam so beautifully. It's always been on my bucket list, but I've never had a driving factor to pull me there. And this movie did such a wonderful job of weaving some of the cultural pieces in with the landscape at the same time. So you have some Vietnamese heritage. Yes, my mother is Vietnamese. Yes. And could you talk a little bit about your connection to Vietnam and how filming this movie in Vietnam altered that connection? I grew up in Rhode Island in like a a small suburb, all white, upper middle class town, and we were neither. And so I was sort of disconnected from my Vietnamese identity growing up just because there was no Vietnamese community. I didn't speak Vietnamese and I was basically just surrounded by white people. And that was sort of the identity that I wanted to have. And it wasn't until college that I started feel like being in a community with like people of color and more Asians um, that I started exploring that side of my identity. And then also like taking classes about Vietnam history and taking writing classes and writing a lot of memoir and sort of examining my relationship to Vietnam. And then after I graduated, my oldest sister, I'm the youngest of six kids, and my oldest sister who had been born in Saigon, my father was in the Navy, so my parents met during the war and were married over there and my sister was born there. So she wanted to get married over in Vietnam. And so I went there for the first time in 2000 and it was amazing. It was incredible. It was like all of us meeting my whole family. My mom's whole family still lives over there. Was and that your first time meeting them? Yep. That was my first time meeting them. It was my father's first time back since the war. It was all of our first time, except for my oldest sister who had been there a couple of years previous. And it was very intense, but just, it just opened my eyes to so much. There was so much that I didn't realize was a part of me because it was from Vietnam and Vietnamese culture and not just because that's how I was Yeah, because it all came through my mom but she was just my mom you know and when you just have that one sort of entry point then you just think oh this is just my mom instead of if you grow up in an entirely Vietnamese community then you even in the U.S. you know like if you live in like little Saigon or in a place that has a lot of Vietnamese people you you can see that it's this is Vietnamese culture. Yeah it's like the context is different right because yeah. you don't you can't see the whole landscape you only see your mom right and yeah. your mom is just your mom like yeah. all of us right <laughs> yeah mom. yeah so that and meeting my family there i have a huge family there my mom is from guangai in central vietnam near da nang going to the family home where my aunt and uncle still lived and that's where my sister had her traditional vietnamese wedding it's the same way that like in jet by doing the jet program and living in the Anaka and being witness to a different side of that community and culture that you just don't see as a tourist or, or even as a traveler, like being in Vietnam with my family on the farm, like you just see a side of Vietnamese life that no one else ever sees. And so that was wonderful. And then that winter, I went back with my sister for six weeks. Hold on a second. I want to ask you, there's a scene in the movie where this whole group goes to like a, you know, a farming village basically in Vietnam. Was that inspired at all by what you just described? Exactly. So in the movie, they're celebrating Tet, which is the uh, Lunar New Year, but it was inspired by my sister's wedding. 
the idea okay. of going to this beautiful countryside village and the woman who plays Banoi, that character is very much based on my aunt. So then that winter I went back with my sister and that was the trip where I met my husband. My boyfriend had broken up with me. We went over there. Uh, and while I was there and I was like, thank God he broke up with me. I was very much on this sort of set safe path, still living in uh, Providence after I graduated from Brown and sort of like seeing myself about to settle down and get a real mm -hmm. job and all of those things. And then in Vietnam, while we were traveling, just realizing, oh God, like that's not the life for me. That is not what I want. That is not who I am. Mm -hmm. And just feeling so open and free. And like you said, the traveling, just the way that traveling, seeing other cultures, it just opens you up if you allow yourself to be opened and to have just these amazing experiences. And then meeting my husband, who also very much was that type of person, like the character of Sin in the movie is inspired by him. And even though he's a white Canadian and Sin is Vietnamese, it was- Almost the same. <laughs> Um, but like the character is, is very much based on my husband that just that idea of like being open to life and, um, going on adventures. And so when I met him, there's, there's so many, there's so many great philosophical lines in the movie too, that that character has that have to do with travel and learning about your true self and allowing yourself to explore the world and yourself along with it. Um, yeah. So I can see this now being reflected. Like I understand where it's coming from now. And I think, you know, as a JET and a JET alum, like I think that's the part that speaks to me as well too. This authentic experience of going somewhere and really diving into it and allowing yourself to explore fully a, a different way of doing things, a different way of thinking, a different way of, of being, you know, instead of just staying on your train track. So that was that whole trip. And it really, yeah, it just, it changed my life. It totally set me on a different path. And like I said before, my husband and I, we decided to apply to this program together. It was just, again, another amazing experience that opened up my eyes to such a bigger world. There is that line in the movie about the difference between being a tourist and a traveler. Yeah. Being a tourist, I have been a tourist and it's wonderful. <laughs> I've been a traveler and that's wonderful. But then also as a jet, you're not even a traveler. You are, I mean, essentially for a couple of years, like an immigrant, the way that we were put into communities and you're teaching there and you're going you're to integrated. Homes, right? you, are, you are part of them. You are not one of them. You are always, a, you're always a gaijin. Right. And I loved that too, thinking about the dis learning to live in a state of uncertainty and discomfort, I think is one of the values of traveling, of living in other countries. And especially the JET program teaching me to navigate the world when you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, you are not one of them. And how do you live? And that's what immigrants, when they come to the U.S., have to deal with so often. And learning my own sense of strength and resilience and ability to handle situations or to navigate. Just having to be in a space where you are not the majority, where you are not the one leading the conversation and you're just trying to figure out what is everyone's and you're sitting there and everyone's talking around and you're just like smiling and nodding yeah. smiling and nodding during like, the polite laugh yeah, you know, yeah, like no, you're laughing at the right time <laughs> yes and like everyone's eating and you're just like okay yeah and you're at the enkai and you're just everyone's drunk and you're just like okay yeah hi <laughs> you don't know what anyone's saying 
feel like Jet really forces you to deconstruct yourself and your culture in a way that no other experience really does. How has Jet informed your career as a screenwriter? Like what skills did you get from Jet that you can see yourself like using in the work that you do today as a screenwriter? And Well, definitely that whole aspect of the way that you are living in another country and you're forced to observe a lot like you are you are very as the outsider as someone who is not looking at things from the inside for me at least it's like you're noticing these details you're picking up your learning so you have to pay attention yeah so in order to navigate or in order to have a full experience you're you're constantly just watching and observing and sort of soaking in that information and so as a writer that's what I do in life often I'm always taking in details I'm always noting um, little things and I'm always sort of like clocking it in my head is like something I can use in my script and which you know if you're in my life like they'll I use all my stuff and it's like I feel so bad for all the people in my life because like it the stuff will end up in a movie someday <laughs> they'll tell me an embarrassing story and I'm like I am using that <laughs> like, everything in my life is material and also communication so screenwriting is one thing is one aspect of my job the actual writing of it but a lot of it is just also you have to sell yourself. You have to pitch your stories. It's very collaborative. You have to be able to deal with the notes from the producers, from the studio, from the actors, from the directors, and everyone wanting to make changes and telling you what you need to do. So you need to be able to process that information and then communicate your own ideas. I learned a lot of communication skills in JET because when you don't speak the language, mm-hmm. for the most part, or even if you speak it poorly, yeah. You need to get across what yeah. it is you're trying to say. So the different ways and the importance of communication is a skill set that uh, I definitely use all the time. One of the most important things of being a writer is to live an interesting life. Mm-hmm. If you just graduate from college, you go straight to film school, you work as an assistant, you're in LA, you're like, what are you writing about? Like your, yeah. your, your life experiences, it all becomes reductive and you're just regurgitating what you saw in a movie. You're just rewriting other people's lives. Um, So you should go out and live an interesting life and have these adventures and learn how to navigate the world in a way that is curious. So be curious about the world. And when in Japan, like my experience, because you're just like, like the whole thing, like even walking through the supermarket and being like, oh, what's this? Like that sense of curiosity that I feel like a lot of Jets have, because if you want to be moving to Japan, if you want to be teaching English over there, like what is it? that makes someone want to be a jet. I want to see the world. And this is a program that allows you to see it in a very specific way. And that sense of curiosity, like, is something that joins a lot of jets is that like, I want to do something different. I want to see the world. I don't want to follow that set path. I loved movies growing up. I worked in a video store in high school in the nineties, thought I was going to be Quentin Tarantino. You know, (laughs) I went to Brown. I took a lot of memoir writing classes and thought I'd be, and then I, you know, and then I started traveling. I was in Japan for two years. We were in Indonesia. We were in South Africa. And then we ended up back in Rhode Island for a couple of years. And I was, you know, bartending and tutoring and nannying and freelance writing and all the things that you do when you're, you know, supposedly trying to be a writer. I wrote a novel that never got published. Uh, But then finally I was like, okay, I should write a screenplay. So I got some books on how to write a screenplay and read some screenplays and I wrote a screenplay. And at that time, uh, my husband used to deliver yachts, uh, 
for rich people. Oh, <laughs> he was a sailor. So uh-huh. rich people, rich people don't move their own yachts. They just like want to show up in St. Bart's and have the boat be there. And then they want to show up in, you know, Jamaica and have the boat be there. I, I want to do that too. That sounds yeah. good. It was, <laughs> it was a, it was an interesting job, but anyway, he was gone for six weeks and I was like, oh, I should write a screenplay. So then I wrote the screenplay. And then after that, we decided that we weren't living the life we wanted to be living. And so we sold everything we owned and we got into our 73 V-Dub van and uh, spent the next year and a half driving around the U.S. and Canada. And oh, you along guys were the like full hippie, man. Oh yeah, full hippie. Yeah. <laughs> well, full hippie, like sleeping in Walmart parking lots and uh, just driving around. And throughout that process, my script made it through to the semifinals of the Nickel Fellowship, which is run by the Academy Awards. And it's sort of the most prestigious aspiring screenwriter, amateur screenwriter competition. Mm-hmm. And so making it to the semifinals was a big deal and got me uh, a little bit more legitimacy. And so I was connected to my manager and he was like, well, if you really want to do this, you need to, you know, move to LA. And I was like, well, I am parked down the street. So done. And <laughs> so we are here. I, that. I just need to change my license plate. <laughs> yeah, basically, that was it. Like that was 12 years ago, um, 12, 13 now, I think. But I was successful quickly, I think, because I had this life experience. Because when I came into a general meeting and I told my life story, I'm like, oh, and then I taught English in Japan. And then I got my offshore yacht master in South Africa. And then I backpacked it. And like, everyone's like, oh my, wow. Like, but yeah, this is what you were talking about life. a minute ago. Like you had yeah. original content. You had lived a life. Yeah. And yeah. I had characters to, to bring in and I had life experiences and yeah. I had geographic locations that I'd, li- you know, cultures that I could express and uh, reference in my writing that someone who had not had such an adventurous, interesting life couldn't necessarily bring, and you can, there are people who are creative enough and good enough writers that they, they can do that. You can write outside of your own experience. But I think having had those life experiences, it informs my writing in a way, and also not just from the actual experiences, but that mentality of- yeah of having traveled, having lived in another country so that I can look at another person's experience and, and try to honor that and respect it and understand it and, and communicate it. When you've traveled around the world, when you've seen people living such completely different cultures and had to learn like, oh, mine is not the only way. And also the community building of JET because mm-hmm. I loved living on my island and I loved the people in my town, but you are always a gaijin. Having, yeah. being able to go back and forth between that and then the jet community and having that sort of comfort zone of people that I could communicate with and, um, and, and making all of those friends and having the support of that community was really important. And so that's still something in my life that I realize is important. And, and all, I mean, we were from all over, you know, like there was, there was our friends that we, you know, became really close with. There was some were British, some were Canadian, New Zealand, you know, South Africa, American. It was just, you know, all the English speakers from yeah. around the globe. So I have a question. Like, how how does your creative process work? Like, do you know the whole story before you start writing it? Or is it evolve as you as you write? So for me, I start off with just ideas and concepts. So I have like a an idealist that's, you know very, very long that I've been keeping for the past 12 years. And every time I get an idea, I just throw it on, you know, the pile and, and they come from everywhere. Sometimes it's my own life. Sometimes it's a 
story from a book or, or that's sort of inspired by a news headline. I start with just like basic, basic concepts and ideas. And then if I decide to pursue them, or you have what's called a general meeting mm-hmm. with screenwriters, you go and you meet like my agents will set up meetings with producers at this company or that company. And you just go in and it's sort of like a first date. And you, and I tell them my whole life story and I talk about what I've done. And then they tell me what they're looking for. Like, for example, if they're looking for a Christmas movie, Uh I will say, oh, I have some ideas and I'll sort of pitch them a couple of the ideas. I have an idea about a surfer in Santa Cruz. Uh Uh Oh, I like that. Then I go and I expand on that. So I take that concept and I will write out a a pitch, which is depending on who you're pitching to, it can be three to 10 pages. And you basically work out the majority of the story and the characters. Okay. like who figure out who are these characters I always start with characters so I have the concept and then I I have to know who the people are before I know what to do okay I and and this changes throughout the process but it's like I always have to start with that and then hopefully ideally you sell it or you just use the outline as your own guide if you're going to write it what's called on spec if you're writing it sort of for yourself for free and then you can try to sell the script so you can try you can sell a pitch it's a story. Like I will, t- it's like 20 minutes of me saying, and then she goes here, you know, oh, and then this okay. character, and then this happens. And then by the end of it, we have them here and here and they've fallen in love. But like, you're literally giving like a vocal uh, Summary, almost. of yeah. what the movie would be. Interesting. And so they can buy the pitch and then you get paid to write the script, which is the best scenario. Okay. <laughs> okay. You can write the script, what's called on speculation on spec. Mm-hmm. And then you can try to sell the the finished script. But either way, I need to have an outline. Some people do just like start writing a script, but most of those people are not professional writers because you, you're required usually in the contract to write the outline because they need to give their notes. They need to, they in the outline form, the producer and the studio will be like, oh no, we don't like this, you know, story arc or, or her character doesn't sound right. We need to shift this or can we do it this way? And so then Aww. you- redo the outline so that you know exactly what's going to happen in the script and then uh-huh. as so as you go forward things can shift and change and then you send in the first draft uh-huh. if, you, if you sold it or if you're working with a producer then they give you your notes and then you rewrite it and then you get more notes and then you rewrite so it how long does it take to go from start to finish the whole process of creating a movie is completely foreign to me and and it's one of those things that I didn't really think about until I met you and started talking to you because you just see what's on your screen and you're taken through this little ride and you're like, oh, this was really fun or it was really scary. Yeah. Or it was really thought provoking or whatever. And then that's it. But you don't think about all the work that goes into it or how it how it actually gets made. Yeah, um, I mean, it can depend. It absolutely depends on the project and the writer because I can write really fast. I can write an entire script in a week, which is not usual. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's only if usually if like, I go away in a cabin in the woods and sort okay. of lock the door, right? And like, don't have a husband and child to like deal with and interrupt me. So for Taurus Guide to Love, that whole process from selling the pitch to the release was two years. Wow. I mean, the whole process of going back and forth with all the different steps and the outline and the revisions and the first draft, second draft, third draft, you know, all of those drafts. And then they go into pre-production. So then they have to they hire a director they we did a worldwide casting search for the male lead for the Vietnamese male lead um 
Rachel Lee Cook, we had developed this together. So she'd been attached. Oh, she was in it from the start. I gave her a bunch of different ideas. She picked this Vietnam idea. Uh And and she's wonderful, by the way, if anyone is a fan of her. She's as (laughs) wonderful in real life as she is on screen. So if she was your high school crush from She's All That, like just know that she's worthy of, of all of your love. So then they filmed in Vietnam and they were over there for two months. Okay. And then it goes into post-production and editing and music. And I have a question. You're the screenwriter, but that does not mean that, and sorry, these are like really basic questions, but that does <laughs> not mean you're the director, right? No, no, no. So the director is the one in my mind, it's like actually giving guidance on set, but as yeah. the screenwriter, you're the one that wrote everything. So yeah. how closely do you work with the director and sort of providing not- that guidance or context? Most often not at all. So really? The thing about Hollywood and the feature world, at least, is that screenwriters are the very, very, very bottom of the power structure. Like you have very little control and very little say. So even while you're developing it, even while you're writing it, the producers that are giving you notes, the studio that's giving you notes, you have to basically be like, okay, if you are a writer and then you are also attached as a producer, yeah, sometimes you can have more control and more power and more say in things yeah. but if you're just the writer in movies when you hand in that final draft there is no requirement really for them to ever communicate with you again and for some of my movies that is actually what happens some of my Christmas movies it's like I send it into the network and I don't hear anything until they tell me when it's going to be released and the director doesn't reach out the producers the actors like I don't I don't know what they don't tell me anything you have no wow no power and and very little respect. If you write a play, you're not yeah. allowed to change a line of that play. Yeah, yeah, the directors yeah, yeah. come in, and, you know, directors come in and they do their interpretation, but you can't change any of the words of that play. Yeah. Or like a book, people are like, oh, these authors are revered. But screenwriters are just like, wait, who, what? That's not, you know, like, and they don't, yeah. But I, <laughs> very so frustrating. I when we were talking last time, I remember you mentioning how thankful the country or the people of Vietnam are feeling towards you because Mm -hmm. of this particular movie. So they must, well, first I want you to talk about that and why that is, but Mm -hmm. they must recognize you as an important part of this. And I don't know if that's just because of your heritage, your Vietnamese heritage, or do they see something that Americans don't see as far as screenwriters go? (laughs) (laughs) The response to this movie has been incredible. It's just been overwhelming and amazing and because the thing about this movie is that it's the first American movie about Vietnam that is not about the war because Americans only ever think about Vietnam in context of the war and it's not about that I mean 80 percent of the population of Vietnam was born after the war Uh and so it's literally just history for them and it's a living history it's an important part of their history clearly but it's not the only part of their country and culture and that is the only way that the U.S. has ever portrayed Vietnam. So they're always victims or villains or whores or soldiers or peasants or beggars. And I wanted a love story. You know, I met my husband there. My parents met over there. So like for me, even though the war is a part of my history with my mother and my father's life, you know, I know that there is so much more to the country. And I wanted to show that. I wanted to show it in a positive light. And that was why we were able to film in Vietnam, because the government gave us basically like full access to film pretty much wherever we wanted because they recognized that this how beneficial this could be to the Vietnamese image globally and to tourism they're never going to let you film a movie about there about the war because 
the communists are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in any American movie, it's gonna yeah. it's like, we're not gonna let you come into our country and make and us then, look bad. Sort of, of course, way. right. Um, so yeah, so that was one of my goals in, in writing this movie was to show Vietnam in this beautiful modern dynamic way where you could actually see the beauty of Vietnam and the, and the culture and the people. And so the response from the Vietnamese community who has never ever had that representation on screen, not just in Vietnam, but like Vietnamese Americans or, or Vietnamese people in the diaspora living around the world have reached out to me and said how grateful they are to finally see their culture and their country presented in a positive way. So that has been just absolutely the most gratifying part of this whole experience because as someone who, you know, half Vietnamese grew up in an all white town, I've always, like I said before, I'd always had a harder time connecting with my Vietnamese identity. I always feel like I'm not Vietnamese enough, which is, you know, something a lot of biracial people feel that you're, you're never quite enough of whichever part. Anything. Yeah. yeah of anything. Right, you're, you're right. Everything, everything and nothing. And so being able to be the person that did this for the Vietnamese community is probably going to be one of the things in my life that I will be most proud of. I think it's the reason they're reaching out to me is because I am Vietnamese. If this movie was written by a white girl, <laughs> Netflix yeah. would not be sending me on press tours and they would not be like, be like, oh, look, we've got a Vietnamese writer. They sent me to Vietnam for a week to yeah. do press. They don't do that for screenwriters ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's only because I was Vietnamese. How do you feel about that? Do you feel good about that or do you feel like almost used? I can acknowledge that that's why they gave me so much promotion and also enjoy it and be grateful for it, you know, yeah. and, and and recognize the benefits that come out of that. Diversity is such a tag word these days and something yeah. that, you know, they have, they feel like they have to be supporting. But if that gets more of these stories told and that gets more people yeah. hired, then I'm okay with that. I feel like the benefits, even if their intentions are not as altruistic as we would like them to be, the mm-hmm. end result, the impact of yeah. those decisions is more important than like if it had been coming from an actual genuine place of wanting diverse stories out there. Yeah. So for me, I'm okay with it because, well, first of all, I got a free trip to Vietnam. So <laughs> like, you can show me off all you want. If yeah. you want to buy me business class to Vietnam, I will happily be your token Vietnamese person on yeah. this project. Um, <laughs> because... I will take all the free trips. I am a total sellout. Just <laughs> I will do anything for a, a business class plane ticket. Apparently I played into it too. I, my legal name is Arian Donahue. Mm-hmm. I added the Tron is my mother's maiden name. And not even a year ago, I changed my professional name to Arian Tron Donahue because I knew that this movie was coming out. You wanted the representation. wanted people to know that, yeah. that it was written by a Vietnamese person. And I get so excited when I see Vietnamese names on screen that yeah. I wanted other people to also get that feeling when they would, I'm like, oh, wait, I could be a, like, there's a Vietnamese screenwriter out there. It's almost like creating the platform, right? It's creating a, like a space for solidarity in that. You yeah. Know? yeah. And just feeling and being able to uh, add to that representation for mm-hmm. people to feel seen in that community, to feel uh, that there is someone out there like them. And then maybe some Vietnamese kid being like, oh, I could be a screenwriter. You know, even if it's just like that one kid that. I can see why it was important for you to add that into your name because your, your name is not 
reflective. Yeah. Oh, it's so white. It's so Irish. Right. It's Irish, right? So it's like that your name doesn't actually reflect maybe how you feel, you know, mm. or, or how you self-identify. And hopefully it opens more doors to more Vietnamese stories. We had a premiere in Hanoi with the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam and the Vietnamese minister of culture and a bunch of other um, American and Vietnamese diplomats. And they gave these speeches talking about how this movie is going to, you know, usher in a new era of Vietnamese filmmaking, because besides changing the image of Vietnam globally, by Netflix filming a movie there and sort of giving it its seal of approval as a place that you could film a movie, other international productions are now looking at Vietnam and being like, oh, we could film there too. And it, it created jobs and experience for uh, hundreds of people that worked on this movie that now can have that experience so that when the next movie comes in, mm-hmm. they can work on that. And and these other international productions have the faith that they can film there too. So that's going to bring more filmmaking into Vietnam. The government is actually also putting um, more uh, funding into their own people and like aspiring Vietnamese filmmakers and film programs and film students. I did a Q and A for a bunch of Vietnamese film students in Hanoi while I was over there, and that was amazing. You yeah. can't have these things unless you encourage young people to pursue this career path. To yeah, pursue- you need to sort of build the infrastructure to support it, right? Yeah. So yeah. all of that has to come from, you know, education and grants and supporting, you know, film schools and writing and creative. Uh, professions because otherwise it's not it's not sustainable yeah I want to thank you for your time today it was lovely to talk to you it was so great to hear how your experience overseas and especially your time on jet helped bring you onto this path that you're on and it's always really really satisfying for me to see the impact that jets are making in the world Um, Mm -hmm. it's not always in U.S. Japan relations And it doesn't always have to be in U.S.-Japan relations. Jets are sort of a special tribe of people. We're doers and we're adventurous and we're globally curious. And we like to give back to our communities. And I love seeing that you did exactly that. Thanks so much for inviting me on. It's been wonderful to reconnect with the Jet community. U.S. Jet AA is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves the network of nearly 40,000 Jet alumni in the U.S.A. U.S. Jet AA supports the Jet alumni community and strengthens the U.S.-Japan relationship via educational, cultural, and intellectual programs that serve the alumni network. Um, that sounds important. When I grow up, I want to be a Jet alum. Thank you for listening to the Jetosphere podcast, a production of JetWit.com. Special thanks to U.S. Jet AA and Claire for their support.